Hey, welcome to the Mind Your Health Podcast. I'm so glad you can join us. I'm your host, Dr. Mina Merholm. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist and an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry in Columbia University. I'll be speaking with some of the leading experts in mental health around the world to learn how we can incorporate principles of lifestyle changes, our faith, as well as some of the leading innovations in mental health to learn how we can live happier and more fulfilled lives. And hopefully we'll have some fun along the way. I hope this inspires you and encourages you to mind your health. Today I have a special guest, a good friend of mine that I've looked up to for, for quite some time and I'm so glad that we get to, to have uh, the time to chat together. Today we have Cecile Babawi, the noted speaker and author of the incredible book, Loving Her Mind. Uh, welcome, Cecile. Thank you, Mina. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on with us. So, um, you know, one of the things we're going to talk about today is, you know, your book and kind of your journey to it. And it's just sort of a, a little, you know, back intro for, for the audience. This is the perspective of, you know, someone who's dealt with mental health concerns in the family. So I wanted to just kind of start by maybe if you could tell us a little bit about, about your book, kind of what led you to that journey of kind of sharing your story. When I first started writing about my story and my experience with mental illness in the family, I was very shy about it. I was very, very hesitant. And so I started by writing on my blog, just kind mm -hmm. of to test the waters and see how that would be received. And I did that for several years, maybe more than several. And um, I started to, based on feedback that I was getting from friends and family members, I started to understand that I'm not the only one by any means who has experienced um, severe mental illness in my family. And friends also recommended or, or nudged me to write something a little bit more involved, like a book. And again, it was very slow and I wasn't sure that I could do that. I had never written a book before. And I, so I just took the advice of some friends and just started writing in more detail and, and really kind of not hold back, you know, and in my mind, I was thinking nobody, you know, it, it might be that this never gets published and that nobody reads it except for my kids. That kind of freed me to not hold back from the details of the story. So and I'm glad uh, I'm glad that you did that because it's a, it's a much needed account. And I think part of what you're alluding to here is that there is this feeling that everyone has that, you know, I'm the only one, right? Yeah. Because because we don't really know. So it feels like everyone I talk to says like, well, I mean, this is just me. So I, I don't think anyone else is kind of in this boat. What's yeah. been the feedback that you've gotten in the process of kind of writing as people are telling you, and it kind of seems more apparent that you're really not the only one who has a family member who's in this struggle. I have been overwhelmed with the response, not just after the book was published, but even while I was writing and, and write and blog writing people that I know and people that I don't know, mm -hmm. um, sending me private messages saying, I have experienced something very similar. Mm -hmm. I know what this is like without going into details. They're just, they have communicated to me that they, they said it was, it was like I was getting into their head. I obviously like, I was just telling my story. I more than one time I've had people say, wow, you're just speaking exactly what I experienced. You know, mm -hmm. even though the diagnosis might have been different, maybe there was never a diagnosis in the first day, you know, a, a connection made mm -hmm. um, with a parallel life, basically, as my friend calls it, living parallel lives and not knowing it all the time and, and then discovering I'm not the only one. Definitely I've gotten a, lo a lot of feedback. 
about this. just saying I have a similar experience. And can you tell us a little bit more maybe about, and I think this could be kind of a teaser for folks who haven't read your book yet, what that parallel life was like, right? Because oftentimes we, people don't really know what it's like for the individual struggling as well as for the family member, the kind of toll it can take. Maybe just a little bit about for your individual perspective and, and story, what was that like? You mean the similarities that we found together? Yeah. Like, yeah. okay, yes. Yeah. So right off the bat, I would say the frustration and sadness of, first of all, realizing that this person is sick mm-hmm. and that it's overwhelming as it is, just that mm-hmm. alone, just realizing that you have this illness that is not going to go away anytime soon or, or mm-hmm. this unknown of how this is going to be managed, if it can mm-hmm. be managed at all, or is this just, are we doomed? Are we going to live like this for the rest of our lives? Mm-hmm. So frustration sadness there's a mourning and that mourning mm. is happening because you it's like you mourn this person while they're alive mm. you, you have those same feelings of loss that you do when somebody passes except they didn't pass they're still there and yet you feel like you've lost them because mm. you don't see the the person that they were mm-hmm. before they became symptomatic or before you know delusions take over you you just feel like something's wrong they're not themselves they're not the way that they used to be and no matter what i say to them we can't get that person back i can't find that person anymore except Mm -hmm. for on rare occasions of clarity which leads me to another parallel experience i think is this this fear of not understanding what's going on with them also and not being and and not being able to talk about it with other people right wow this is a very strange situation she's acting very bizarre i can't tell anybody about this because it's just too bizarre it's too Mm. nobody will believe me you know and you have all these these thoughts in your head that that you know with every single thought you just feel more and more isolated and that's the other feeling and that's the other experience is this isolation People don't understand. It's very hard to understand. I think it's very hard to understand mm-hmm. mental illness. Mm-hmm. Why can't you just tell them that what they what they believe is wrong, or why can't why can't they just keep on living their life and just, you know, you know, it's just so hard to. It's you can't take a microscope and look and see different colored cells or maligned cells or whatever. You know, you can't do that with mental illness. Right. You can't take an X-ray and say, oh yeah, there's something wrong with your brain will give you this medicine and you'll be fine. Mm. You can't do that because most of the time they refuse to take the medicine, even though medicine, there are medicines that work as of course, you know, and, and they work in the sense that they're able to give some sort of stability to the person, but not when they are paranoid and they think that by taking the medicine, their life is going to be worse and not better. So it's just kind of like the nature of the monster. Yeah. And the nature of that, I think what what you're alluding to is so important because even as we've shifted a little bit, I think, in the conversation about stigma in general, we've come a long way in terms of common mental health struggles, depression, anxiety. And I feel like the general landscape is beginning to become less isolating. You know, the athletes are talking about it, you know, popular figures. But when you're talking about serious mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and the like, it seems as though there is still these calls that I'm getting and you're getting sort of in, in the shadows are still really isolated and people still really feel alone that, hey, this is too bizarre, as you're saying. This is too scary that 
no one's going to understand them. They're going to they're going to look at me funny, even if I'm a family member. So, can you speak yes. a little bit about isolation and and how the how this lack of understanding sometimes from others drives this fear and puts the family members further and further into isolation that it hinders community. Fear is the biggest obstacle, I think, that leads to the isolation and the biggest cause, I believe, mm-hmm. that leads to isolation. If I dare to say anything about what's going on in my home, people are going to think I'm weird or not not just weird, but dangerous. You know, right. maybe my family member is dangerous. I'm not going anywhere near there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing. So weird, dangerous. And the third thing that I think of is just lack of confidence in mm-hmm. knowing how to talk to the person. Mm-hmm. So what will I say? Should I say something to try to comfort them? Should I not bring it up at all? Mm-hmm. Just this maybe lack of awareness of how to to approach the person or how to converse with the person is also might also leads to you know not wanting to make a connection with the person that's suffering from the illness or even their loved even the loved ones mm-hmm. and the family members. So mm-hmm. lack of knowledge. Yeah. Can you expand on that point a bit? I think you've you've learned a lot over the over the years in terms of how you're communicating maybe with you know with your mom who was who was struggling. And if someone, let's say, is is watching this and is has a family friend and they're asking themselves that exact question, you know, how do I approach someone who is struggling? And uh, you know, we know kind of the not great way of just kind of try to tell them that they're what they're thinking is wrong, that the, the delusion is, you know, incorrect. I know you've spoken a bit before about an approach. What would be a helpful approach for a family member to take? Yeah, that's a great question. Something I learned so late in life. Yeah, I wish I would have. Better late than never. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, if I may start by telling you what didn't work, for sure what did not work through the years was trying to convince her that she's wrong. Right. Right convince her that so-and-so and so-and-so is not out to get her right. or so is not evil that mm. never worked never mm. not even for one minute you know not right. even for one, one time did that work seemed like oh, it should right it seemed like a good idea yeah. but it's just it's like because it's logical to us right. Right. they don't have the gift of that ability to reason and not in the same way that we do because of that block i guess or that chemical imbalance or, or whatever i'm supposed to call it <laughs> but I believe that one of the biggest things that helped us in just in communicating with my mother was first of all showing her that we empathize with what she's going through. She's going through a mm. hard time. Mm. Somebody's out to get her. Um, she's not living a normal life, and she's mm-hmm. she would be the first person to tell you that. You know, right. I don't live a normal life. I have special right. powers, and there's and so as as a result of these powers, people are out to they're studying me and they're out to Mm. get me and they don't have my good and they don't have good intentions. Mm. So this is, there's a lot of turmoil going Mm. on for her too. And so to, the first thing was to be able to empathize with her and, you know, Mm. step to put myself in her shoes and say, you know what, this has got to be so hard. Mm. This is so difficult. So that ability to listen and empathize and just keep my mouth shut and mm. let her let her get it out let her say what she wants to say without mm. my arc without me you know trying to insert the truth right. you know which i know what the truth is we all know what the truth is right. you know but 
he doesn't have the ability to see that truth and it's mm. okay mm. it's okay for the time being for that conversation mm. it's okay by empathizing and listening that doesn't necessarily mean that i'm backing up her, her right. stories that are right. in her. that would be the first the first definitely the first thing and then the next would the next step i believe was which is what i learned was to find something to agree on mm. so some way in the conversation to determine something you can agree with mm -hmm. the person. So for example, in my situation, if I could get us to the point where we could agree that mm. her life is not normal, life is not normal for us. Can we agree with that? Yes, we can agree. With that. Okay, great. Can we agree that, for example, that when you're on the medication, when you are on it, life is a little bit better hmm. maybe maybe you're able to go to church or you're able to go to work um and have more calm days or better days could we agree with that hmm. that didn't that that's not a personal example that never occurred with my mother but hmm. it might for somebody else right. you know agree on something right then that's a step further in the process right and then the last step is to partner with mm -hmm. that person to look mm -hmm. at as a partner to that person. Mm -hmm. Okay, how can we work together now to get to, now that we've agreed, for example, that you don't sleep as well without the medication, how can we together get to the point or get you to the point where you can have better sleep at night? Mm -hmm. And to try to discuss different options. Mm -hmm. There's never just one option. There's going to be different options for sure. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just to take melatonin at night, you know, right. just throw sure. this. I, I wish I could say I made this up, but I didn't. That was based on the LEAP method by mm -hmm. Dr. Xavier, which I talk about in my book and I summarize it in my book. And he wrote his own book called I'm Not Sick, I Don't Need Help by Xavier mm -hmm. Amador. The whole book is about the LEAP method. And mm -hmm. when I discovered it several years ago, I I was just so amazed by it. I was encouraged by it because mm. I realized, wow, this is a problem that affects many, many, many people. Mm. And I had a lot of hope with it because I realized this is something that could close the gap between me and my mother. That was really big for me. I think that's key, honestly, the theme of what you're saying there, that partnership, like building an alliance with the person in front of you, because remembering that they're also afraid and they also feel isolated and they feel like, you know, you can kind of come into their world a bit. And this is actually helpful both for family members as well as people in healthcare. Because uh, I'll be honest with you that the general medical outlook oftentimes is not that, <laughs> is, is more so telling you, here's what you should do. You should do this, yep. this, and this, and then you'll be better. Uh, yep. As opposed to kind of coming alongside a person and saying, yeah. you're the lead, you know, I'm here for you. And that could be really powerful. And, and I think along those lines too, one of the things I'm hoping that you can speak to as well is the other element that can sort of come alongside the person is their faith community, the church, right? And I've seen some situations where it's been amazing, right? Even most recently, I had, I had one priest come on the, in the hospital and administer the unction of the sick to a patient in the psychiatric unit. And because it's an illness like any other illness and it's not yeah. something terminal and there's hope. And, and that was powerful for the person to feel like I'm whole, you know, I'm part of the community. I can receive a sacrament in the yeah. hospital. Yeah. Can you speak to sort of the positive power of the church when we are coming alongside someone who's struggling? There are many, many negative examples. <laughs> we'll try to stay on like the positive power of the church. What can be 
the hope that the church can provide for these things? Well, the first thing that I would say is prayer. Mm. And when we have a whole entire community praying for that, the person that's suffering, that's afflicted and the family members mm -hmm. or, the, or the caregivers of that person, then that's going to be the, the most powerful thing that we can do. I believe mm -hmm. the effects or the results of that are seen and unseen, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't always know, you know, why things happen the way they do. We just know that they happen. And of course, we know that that's a matter of faith, obviously. We can't talk about the church without faith. And with that prayer and the faith that is fueling that mm -hmm. is healing for mm -hmm. sure. So that's why your story about the person in the hospital is so wonderful because that also, obviously, that sacrament is fueled by faith and mm -hmm. the prayer of the unction of the sick is exactly what it's doing. But we can all pray for the person. Also, sometimes it's not direct. Sometimes the power of community in the church and the power of faith in the church is not doesn't directly make that person's life better, but mm -hmm. for sure it makes the life of the caregivers mm -hmm. a lot better. Mm -hmm. So even if the person themselves doesn't directly feel the benefits of a, a church community, the loved ones will. And I can mm -hmm. attest to that. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, my dad really did, my father looked to the church for his support and his refuge, and he got it. You know, even though growing up, again, we weren't, we didn't talk about it. At least I, as a, as a child, I was never encouraged to talk about it. But I know that my dad had, very close friends in the church and of mm -hmm. course he always looked to the clergy for help as well and she did not always receive or wasn't always willing to take communion you know receive communion but mm -hmm. he definitely there was always that willingness by the church and by the community to show up when they need to to visit her to bring her communion and to do mm -hmm. those things and that was helpful for dad not for us for sure. So that would be how I could share my experience with, with the power of the church. No, I love that. I think that's an important thing for the church to keep in mind that, that there's a whole family unit in place here. There's the individual yeah. struggling and those around them. And, and I think yeah. to that point, you know, one of the things that we were kind of discussing a little bit offline and something, that, something I've heard a lot recently too, is how this illness can sometimes put a strain, not just on the family, but specifically on a relationship, you know, a marriage, things like that. And sometimes the the crisis calls I've gotten is, well, you know, my spouse is struggling with this and there's sort of a, a despair in it. Well, this is kind of what it is and there's no, nothing I can do. Can you speak a little bit to, of course, the strain is going to be there in a relationship, but is there hope potentially that if this is something that begins to be addressed and that strain can be lessened and that relationship can be salvaged, or is it, you know, every person with a mental illness is doomed to never be in a relationship? I feel like there's two possibilities that come to my mind right away. Number one is you're either going to feel judged or number two, you're not going to care. So you're either going to be affected by judgment or you're not. Right. You're going to make that decision. Mm. You're going, you have to choose one or the other. Either you don't care what people think and you're not going to let it affect you from doing what you believe is right mm. for your family or you're going to be driven by it and make mm -hmm. your decision based on that, right. on that fear of being um, mm. judged by the community or, or whatever. Sometimes in the people that I've talked to, it isn't a matter of being judged, it's just a matter of safety. And right. they keep their family, their kids safe from their person that's um, afflicted. And that's, mm. and that's why we can't judge, right? If, for example, 
the spouses split up for you know a certain amount of time or for on a, on a long-term basis we can't know the situation unless we're very close to them we don't know I see it oh I have seen it oh, I don't know but I'm sure you have too you see it over and over again over and over again the community can help again by that undying support and the complete disappearance of judgment right. you know if the caregiver knows or if the person struggling in in their family knows that they're not going to be judged they're not going to be looked at weird. They're not going to lose their friends. Kids too, not just the spouses, but but kids as they grow and you know if they are dealing with something in this in their home that they know that they're not going to be judged by what's going on in their home. Then I believe it will help them. First of all, be a kid. I have to grow up too fast. Right. You know, not miss out on their childhood, and that is a huge, huge game changer. For that child and that, and for the spouse too. I mean, if they know that they, if they learn how to set boundaries with support, you can learn those things too. Sometimes you don't think about it, right? And you're just trying to survive, and so you are literally not, you're not breathing. You know, you're you're barely coming up air, trying to take care of this person and any other responsibilities that you have, whether it's work or your family or whatever. And then, are you taking care of yourself? And that you know, where's the time to take care of yourself after all that? not you're probably not so with with support you can first of all discover and mm -hmm. or understand and then get in the habit of mm -hmm. taking care of yourself too because if we can take care of ourselves we'll be better caregivers for the people around us right for sure i believe that the community absolutely contributes to that so that, that would be the biggest thing for me no, I love that. And I think, you know, part of that support, there's a, you know, I sometimes sort of just envision this as a, I'm a sports guy. So everything is like a team sport. There are all these different roles of the team. Sometimes there's the community, there's our faith, but sometimes, believe it or not, one of the, like the easy but forgotten members of the team is that the healthcare community can actually help, believe it or not. And it's hard because mental illness is difficult to sort of understand. But one of the things that I'd encourage folks who are seeing this to, to sort of know as well is that all of these members of the team, there isn't one of them that's the answer, right? It's not like the, the healthcare folks are the answer or the family is the answer. But the more of those we can kind of put together, I'm still getting people who are shocked that, hey, there is a medicine that you can take that is once a month. There's some that you can take that's once every three months. And that this can really go a long way in terms of, you know, allowing you to have clearer thoughts. And this will allow you to engage more with the community. And this will allow you to have better coping skills with the family. So it all kind of ties in together, right? If we're looking at this kind of holistic team-based approach, right? Isn't it kind of one thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. When we have that that outlook or that approach of that team, you know, we're all working together for the same goal. It just releases the burden. It's just mm -hmm. so much less burdensome. And that's our goal here. You know, I'm so glad that we had a chance to, to chat. I would love to, spend, to speak with you kind of all day here because I think your book is fantastic. I think it's so liberating to like to hear both from, you know, the general perspective of family member, just kind of taking it layers here, but also a family member with a Christian background. I think the Christian community has a lot to kind of look at here. And then even the Christian Egyptian community, there's a lot for us to learn here as well. So I would love for folks to A, pick up a copy and to connect with you. How do people connect with you? How do they find a copy of your awesome book? So the book is available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble online. 
And um, you can connect with me through my website at CecileBabawi.com on Facebook and Instagram. And yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> that's yeah. plenty. That's fantastic. So um, I just thank you so much again, Cecile, for the work that you're doing here to reduce stigma, to kind of take away the secrecy and the isolation. I think this is powerful and liberating and empowering. And I, and I hope everyone that checked it out here, please pick up a copy of the book. I think it's it's fantastic. And, and please connect with Cecile. And um, thank you again for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you, Mina. And I appreciate all the work that you're doing too, especially really providing that platform for people to be able to talk about these issues and talk about this, these challenges that are so prevalent right now. And I just thank you for also just for having me today. I'm honored to be here. An honor for me. Thank you, Cecile. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. Please take a second to rate and review as this helps us reach more people. And until then, please don't forget to mind your health. See you soon.